You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of the Sabbath. And I pray now, Lord, that you would use this time for your glory. Pray that you would reveal yourself to us, open our hearts to you, Lord. And would you speak through me now and use this time um, for your glory. And ask all these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Does everyone have a handout? There should be. Oh, and y'all can come on in. Plenty of seats. So, thank you all for being here. It's good to see y'all. Again, you had the opportunity to go to a lot of great classes, and I'm very grateful that y'all are here. Welcome. So, this is the second class in a series that we're doing in Faith and Family on Rest. And this idea kind of came about when, um, at the end of the year, the youth team gets together in May, and we kind of discuss some of the cultural trends that we see. And the biggest thing is this idea of we just really feel like our students are overworked and anxious pretty much all of the time. Not only do they have just a million and one things going on, but they seem to have this mentality that if they're not doing something, they're wrong, right? That if they're not working, they're therefore procrastinating and they're therefore failing. So obviously that's not just students, though, that have and inability to rest. And it's not just students that feel anxious and overworked. We all struggle with this. And so the hope for this class is that one, it would offer you guys helpful tools to extend to your family um, as to how you can more seriously think about gospel-centered rest. And then hopefully too, you all receive a word of rest today about the finished work of Jesus. And this probably goes without saying, but when we talk about rest, we don't mean just taking a nap. That's certainly a part of it. But we mean the deep, soul-fulfilling rest that's found in Christ. The rest that um, comes from knowing that it is finished and that our striving, our striving cease. So, welcome guys. Y'all come on in. So, when I thought about what I wanted to teach on, I immediately thought of something that I learned freshman year in college that was really kind of transformational in the way I thought about rest. And what that was, was I was at um, RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, one night listening to a talk, and it was on the Ten Commandments. We were doing a series, and that night it was talking about the Sabbath. And my campus pastor said that a really helpful way to think about rest is thinking of rest as a form of trust. And that was super convicting for me, because I struggled to rest a whole lot. And it was convicting because he was making the point that when we fail to rest, we're ultimately failing to trust God. And on the other hand, when we do rest, it's a statement of faith saying, Lord, you've got this, I do not. I trust you to work and to be at work even when I'm in it at rest. And I trust you with the burdens of my life. I hand them over to you. And therefore, I can enjoy the gift of rest and Sabbath that you have graciously given to me. So that's kind of the idea I want us to center on today, that Rest is a form of trust. And um, I was thinking, too, that it's really hard to trust someone that you don't know, right? The more you get to know someone, the more you're able to see, okay, I can trust this person or I can't trust this person. And luckily for us, God is someone that the more we get to know him, the more assured we can be of the fact that we can trust him and the fact that we can rest in him. And so 
basically what we're going to do today is we're just going to get to know God a little better. And we're going to get to know God as we see him in Jesus a little better too. And so hopefully the kind of concrete things that you take away from this class, you can, like I said, extend to your family so that you can better into enter into the rest that he offers us. And so we're just kind of going to do like a survey of four kind of biblical passages that show us more of God's character. And here are the, the main takeaways that we're going to see about God today. One, we're going to see that God is our creator and our sustainer. So God is at work even when we are not, and that is good news. Number two, God is a God who fights for his people, meaning that the battles of our life are in God's hands. He is always fighting for us. Number three, we're going to see that Jesus is someone who is always at work too, even when it feels like he's asleep. And number four, we're going to see that Jesus is someone who gives us an identity that is not tied to what we produce or how we perform. He grants us an identity that is completely separate from the things that we do, which invites us into this deeper state of rest. And then hopefully at the end, I'll offer just one or two practical insights as to how you can maybe think about rest as a family. So that's where we're headed today. And before we kind of dive into that, I think it's worth thinking about why it is so hard to rest. Why do why do we not really want to accept the gift of the Sabbath that is held out to us? And two main things came to mind when I was thinking about why is it so hard to rest? And the first one I think is the most obvious one. There's just so much to do, right? I cannot imagine. I mean, I feel busy as a single 24-year-old, and I cannot imagine what it must be like to have lives that you are responsible for. There's just so much to do, right? Homework has to be done. Dinner has to be put on the table. um, Family drama has to be dealt with. I mean, it really does seem like, it really does seem like, how can we rest when there's just so much to do? And uh, someone in this room and I, who may or may not have given birth to me one time, were talking about the story in the Bible um, with Mary and Martha, when Mary and Martha are both hanging out with Jesus, and Martha's kind of scurrying around, getting dinner together, cleaning, and Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet, enjoying his presence. And we were talking about that, and this person said, you know, that story's always bothered me, because someone had to make dinner. And she was right. Dinner had to, dinner did have to get made. Jesus did need to eat. But um, so, so I do understand that it is hard to rest because it feels like there's so much to do. And I think, though, at the root of all of this, though, is that we kind of have an overinflated sense of our importance. And we feel like, well, if we're not doing it, no one will. And along with that, we kind of have a limited view of God's sovereignty and control. It just seems impossible that the world would keep going if we took a break. But the good news is that it will. And so that's the first reason. We just feel like there's too much that needs to get done. We just, resting seems impossible. Number two, I think we have a hard time resting because so often we mistake where our identity is found. We think that our identity is in what we do rather than who we have been declared to be in Christ. And so if we if we have that false mentality of our identity, if we stop producing and our identity is linked to what we do, uh, we feel like failures. And that's a terrible feeling. And that, that's, I think, why students can't seem to know the difference between procrastinating and resting, right? They have linked their identity to what they produce. And therefore, if they're not producing, they're not, they're no one. Are there any Grey's Anatomy fans in here? 
Anyone's watched Grey's Anatomy? I went through a big Grey's Anatomy phase the first year out of college because I had so much free time. But um, there's this scene where Dr. Preston Burke, he's this world-renowned heart surgeon, and he's just been shot or gotten a car accident, something that happens that you would expect on Grey's Anatomy. And he's no longer able to perform surgery. And he's talking with his uh, wife, maybe Christina, and in a really dramatic moment, he holds up his hand, which is all bandaged, all bandaged, and he goes, these hands are who I am. And, like, that's a dramatic example, but it's kind of what we feel, too. Like, if we lost our hands, the things that help us produce, and we could no longer produce, do surgery, we would be failures. So that's, I think, the second reason why we have such a hard time resting. So clearly we need some help, and luckily for us, that is where the Lord comes in. So, like I said, we're going to look at just a couple passages that show us more of God's character, specifically as it relates to how we can trust and how we can rest in who God is and what he's done for us. So, the first place we're going to start is Genesis. And we're, for the sake of time, we're not going to read all of Genesis 1 and 2, which is when God is creating literally everything. But you all know the story. It begins, the earth is formless and void, and God creates the skies, the seas, mountains, plants, animals, birds, bugs, and then finally ending with the pinnacle, human beings. And God kind of takes a step back, and he says, this is really, really good. And then, as we also know, Genesis tells us that God rests. He takes a break. And you all are all smart enough to know that God did not need a break. He, did, he wasn't tired. But he rested to enjoy his creation, the things that he had made. And that's what he invites us into as well, to enjoy the Lord's creation, to enjoy the work that he has done for us. And so God is our creator, certainly, but... Oh, yes. (laughs) Anyone else, feel free to get up and move. Maybe take a nap if you like. That's what we're all here for. But uh, so God is the creator. He's also our sustainer. And I literally, this just jumped out to me today. That's what I love about the liturgy. You could say it your whole life and things still kind of pop out at you. In the prayer of thanksgiving, we thank thee for our creation and our preservation. And that's what the Lord is doing right now. This passage from Colossians, um, it's speaking about Jesus, but it's speaking about Jesus, the image of the invisible God. So Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this is a sustaining, preserving nature of our God. He, Jesus, who this passage is talking about, and God right now are up in heaven taking care of everything. They are sustaining the work that they have done, the, the creation they have made. Um, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, means he was right there with God in the beginning. And so there's never been a time where God has not been at work. And there will never be a time when God is not at work. So that's good news for us. That means that our creator and our sustainer is taking care of things even when we are taking a nap. So... That's, that's kind of the first little glimpse of God's character I wanted to look at. Second is that God is a God who fights for his people. And so we're going to look at Exodus 14, very famous p- passage of the parting of the Red Seas. 
This is another cool thing. I obviously have heard the story growing up so many times, but being in it this week, preparing for this class, it's just such a cool story. And it's even cooler when we realize that it's a true story. So Exodus 14, it's kind of long, but I wanted us to read basically all of it. So I hope you'll bear with me. And then context. Y'all are probably familiar with the story too, but Moses and the Israelites, God's chosen people, have been in Egypt in slavery. And the Lord has spoken to Moses and said, all right, lead my people out of Egypt and into the promised land. I want to free them from the slavery that they're in. And so Moses is getting ready to do this. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So God is, or Pharaoh, excuse me, is coming after the Israelites. He is mad. So it's not a good situation for Moses and his people. And here's where we pick up in verse nine. This is also on your handout, I hope. The the Egyptians pursued them, them being the Israelites, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and encamped at the sea by by Haroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud in the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all, his, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of, and of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then we know the end of the story too, right? Moses will close the sea again and all of Pharaoh's army will do the dead man's float as we sing in, or as we sang back when I was a little kid. So this is such a cool story, right? A couple of things that I want to point out here. Number one, God's provision is just so evident. Um, note how in verse 19, the pillar moves from um, in front of the Israelites to behind them. You know, the Lord is continually providing for his people, even in the midst of such a scary situation. And then two, this jumped out to me literally this morning as I was rereading it. Um, in verse 21, it, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. So the Lord, this is the sustaining hand of the Lord, right? He's holding back the sea for his people all into the night so that it can cross through safely. 
And uh, obviously the like money verse of this passage is when the Lord says, or when Moses says, the Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. This is our story too, right? This was the Israelite story. This is our story. The Lord is fighting for us. All we have to do is rest and trust. Because think about what it would what it would have felt like to be an Israelite. And you were told, all right, walk through the middle of this parted sea. That's terrifying. That took incredible trust. And it took incredible resting trust in the Lord their God. And even though they grumbled, they um, they acted in that trust of the Lord. And they um, they obeyed that they only had to be silent and rest. Um I think, too, another, I mean, this is our story also because we're just like the Israelites when they complain at first. And they're like, no, Moses, we'd actually rather go back to slavery. Like, are you sure that this is what we're supposed to do? Um, are there no graves for us in Egypt? They're so melodramatic and um, just like us. And thinking about rest and work, this is what we are like, too, right? I think sometimes we're more prone to say, no, God, I'd rather just stay as a slave to my work then enter into rest and trust you when it seems really scary. Because, I mean, like I said, it's it's scary to rest sometimes, right? Because it feels like there's just too much to do. I can't, I can't take a break. Um, but just like the Israelites were called to let the Lord fight for us and we're called to take that first step into the parted Red Sea and trust that our God will sustain us as we cross over. I think, too, it's worth noting that the Israelites are going to cross through, they're going to make it, And then just a couple chapters later in Exodus, God's going to give them the Ten Commandments, one of which is keeping the Sabbath. And so it's this picture of God um, releasing his people from the bondage of slavery, just like he's released us from our bondage to sin. And then he gives them the gracious gift of his Sabbath. It's, It's not something that they have a legal demand to do. It's something that God gives to them as... Um, a sign of his goodness and his loving kindness towards his people now that they've been released from their lives of slavery. So that was some Old Testament stuff for us. Now let's move to the new. So we're talking about Jesus. Another super famous passage, Jesus calms a storm. And we're in Mark 4 now. And this is, again, kind of we're going to see the idea that even when it seems like he is not, God is always at work. Always, always, always. So Mark 4 On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? Okay, so again, this is a passage where I've read it so many times, but things just keep jumping out to me. Number one is, this was God's idea to get into the boat, or Jesus' idea to get into the boat. Jesus is God in the flesh. So he knew that a storm was coming. You know, Jesus was not surprised by this storm that was about to come. And he was so not surprised that he decides to take a little nap because Jesus was a human. He got tired. And so this is, I think, a really beautiful picture of 
what it really looks like to trust in God. Obviously, Jesus had full, perfect, obedient trust in God, his father, so much so that he knew that a storm was coming and he was like, I've got this. My father's got this. I'm going to go take a nap. And so secondly, or that's the first thing we see, Jesus Jesus already from the get-go walks into a storm he knows is coming in complete trust of his father. Second thing, I mean, just like the Israelites, the disciples really show us kind of who we are because when the storm starts to come, what's their reaction, right? They are super, they're like, Jesus, wake up. Do you not care that we are perishing? Like, aren't you going to do something here, buddy? And keep in mind that they've seen Jesus do miracles at this point in Mark. So they, even though they've seen him do miraculous things, they're lacking the trust right now to rest that Jesus will be the one to calm the storm. And Jesus, all he has to do is he wakes up and all he has to do is say to the sea, he says a word of peace, peace, be still. And the storm stops. Kind of just like what we see with in Exodus 14, God um, having control over the wind and the sea too. Almost as if it's the same God, which we know that it is. And uh, just like the disciples too, I, I love how it ends with Jesus's kind of gentle rebuke of them. Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? You know, he's basically saying like, you really didn't think I could handle this one after all you've seen me do. And I think we have this reaction to Jesus too, right? Even after we see him calm the storms of our lives, we um, we have this, we have a still, uh, we have trouble trusting that Jesus really is the one who can calm the storms of our life. And unlike the disciples, though, we do know the full end of the story. We know that we really, really can trust Jesus to be the one that's going to calm all the storms that we see coming in our life because Jesus himself took on the ultimate storm, the cross. And so that's how that's the beautiful picture that we have that the disciples didn't have that allows us to really trust in Jesus as the one who has an ability to speak peace into the storms that we just feel are completely out of control in our lives. So that's the third glimpse that we kind of see of Jesus. Third or fourth and final, we see that Jesus never relates to people based on what they produce or how they perform. And I, I really, I couldn't choose just one specific story here because it's kind of just all throughout the gospels, right? Jesus is gravitating towards the lame, the blind, the possessed, the widowed, the poor. And these are the people who in the eyes of society just had zero productive value. But Jesus relates to them solely based on who they are in Christ. And the same is true of us. Jesus never relates to us on the basis of a quota we meet or for our students, the grades they get or whatever your uh, PR in track is. He relates to us simply on the basis of our identity in Christ. And that's really good news because like I mentioned earlier, when our identity is tied to what we produce, we feel like we can't produce because if we stop producing, we'll no longer have an identity. And so we really do need Jesus to come in and give us this external identity. And I think, especially in families, this really is something that requires kind of countercultural witnessing, you know, to be able to rest in your identity in Christ and not in what the world tells you your identity is in, your productive value. I think schools are just so good at making our students think that, that who they are is the grades they make or their ACT score or 
their starting lineup. Um, I, I think that it's just so easy to get our identities kind of entangled. And so to be a family that firmly says, I'm going to rest in my identity in Christ, which is not tied to what my child produces, is something countercultural and something that we need to pray for all the time. Um, so those are kind of my four, my four hit points about how we can know God more, allowing us to trust God more, allowing us to rest in him more. So on the back, I stole this kind of from Cameron, who I know last week gave you all a little gospel narrative worksheet, so to speak. This is just kind of concretely breaking down the four things I just talked about. Maybe something to talk through with your family of, okay, what do we know about God and what does that mean for us? Maybe the next time your child is refusing to go to bed because it's 3 a.m. and their English homework isn't done yet. I'm sure we cannot relate at all, parents. But um, maybe walk them through this sheet and say, okay, what do we know about God? What does that mean for you? It means you can go to sleep and it, it is going to be okay because it is finished. So um, kind of going off of that, really quick practical things. And this is coming from someone who needs them just as much as the next guy. I think when we think about rest, we have the freedom to kind of get creative. Sometimes it really might mean just taking a nap. And I think also it means asking ourselves and asking the Holy Spirit, okay, what are the things that give me life? What are the things that energize me? Some days for me, that, that really does mean staying in bed and watching Netflix. Some days it means going to Zumba class. Some days it means um, taking a hike. Some days it means calling a friend. And so that's something that you can honestly have fun with as a family. What is it that energizes us? What is this that is not work, but that gives us life and that um, connects us to the deeper rest that's found in Christ? And, you know, that might change week to week, too, depending on the kind of week you've had. I think, too... We need to, I need to, um, it's a good idea to repent of our inability to rest because I really do think that our anxiety, like I said, is linked to us believing that we are in way more control than we actually are. And so when we find ourselves in places where we don't feel like we can rest, we can turn to the Lord in repentance and say, I'm sorry, I'm doing that thing again where I'm not trusting your sufficiency and your power over everything. And then third, I mean, kind of like what we're doing today, I think we can spend the rest of our lives just getting to know God more. Because the more we know God's character, the more we're going to be able to say, no, God, I know that this is true about you, and I know that that means that I really can take a break every now and then. So um, those are my little practical tidbits. And I have one final thing I want us to do to end the class, but are there any questions before? Yes. Mm. And there's two middle That's such a good question. And that's a question I've thought about for myself also. Because sometimes I do think we can numb and um, distance ourselves from the things that actually need to get done in the name of rest. And that's obviously unhealthy. I would say that a key thing with that is beginning your work from a posture of rest. So recognizing that, okay, yeah, I've got this amount of homework that like does need to get done tonight, or I do have a test tomorrow. I'm going to block off an hour of studying. 
So there's nothing wrong with being diligent about that. And I'm a big fan of to-do lists. And I don't plan on that changing anytime soon. And But I think the key is to know the work that's in front of you and that what has to get done, say, tonight. But entering into that work with a mentality of rest and allowing that be the, the thing that drives uh, our work rather than working, 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 working so that maybe hopefully we can rest. I don't know if that's helpful at all. I mean, I, I'm i guilty of procrastinating too. Um, if anyone has any practical tips too as a parent, please feel free to share them. Yes? Well, one of the great theologians, Pooh Bear, they're oh. <laughs> fond of saying that whenever one has a list of chores, that taking the nap should be the first one completed. <laughs> there we go. There's the answer. Um, yeah, that's a great. Yes, Ginger. I do think, um, as someone who certainly struggles with procrastination, like I think so often it's like getting at what that really is. Like rarely it's just that they, that students. It's not that they don't know that it's important. It's really this like bottom one like there it's you're so tied up in like my identity is what I produce mm. and I have to be successful that it I think depending on your personality like you said it can paralyze you right so it's still it's not failure if you don't do it but if you do it and try and don't do right it, I think it's still an issue of like where is my identity right mm. if, you are, if you are like my identity is in this English test and like I'm not going to be able to cut it no matter how much I try. Mm. That's really scary. That's really good, Ginger. You want to like put your head in the sand. Yeah, mm. that's so true. So I do think there's, you know, room, you know, and our kids aren't doing a lot of homework like that yet. But like, it is just a very fine line to walk between like do your work and then also like what's really going on here right right you know, what's the motivation I think typically like with my own kids where they are you see they certain tasks seem to be harder for them mm. it's because of something that they actually like struggle with yeah you know? that's so good thank you ginger any final questions yes I just thought I was just, you were talking it was making me think back to um like when my son was a little bit younger and trying to get him to do things um, it was really challenging. And to throw in the football with him in the front yard and doing spelling words or... Oh, that's that's like good. Being outside the box or getting in the car and just kind of randomly yelling out words. Yeah. <laughs> he was so more so much more productive. That's really and helpful. sitting there. Um, and then when he's trying to do essays or something like that, like he can talk it out with me and I can kind of jot down the main points and then it's easier. Yeah. So I think breaking it down. That's so good. That's kind of what I mean by get creative. And obviously that's working, but I think that's working from a posture of rest and creativity and trust in the Lord. That's really helpful. Um, okay, so I want to end the class a little differently. And this might feel awkward for some of y'all, but I want us to sing and or at least worship in some sense. And we're going to, I really do hope y'all will sing because this song, I love this song. Um this is what I listen to on Thursday mornings when I'm driving to my early morning Bible study and I need to pump up. This is what I listen to, and it's off the Advent Birmingham album that was released almost a year ago. It's on Spotify, so I'm going to turn off the recording now. So go listen to it on Spotify if you're listening to this. And Oh, you're right. Oh, too late. No, okay, maybe not. This is Our Striving Cease. It's on that album, and it's the song. It's the first song on the album, Psalm 127. Okay, 
Now I'm going to turn it off. (laughs) You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.